0: 3 19 through 25 here in just a couple moments children are dismissed to junior church as I intro this passage children are dismissed if they haven't I think some of them already uh, left before the song but we're going to be going to Galatians 3 19 through 25 if you would start turning there Uh, but let me introduce the passage by talking about lions and cages can you imagine keeping a lion as a pet These people did, and his name is Christian. So I'm going to let, this is a a few years ago, but uh, I'm going to ask to play this video. It's only a couple minutes long about Christian the lion. Turn it down. Ken, you can stop at any time. Ken, go ahead and cut it. So Christian the Lion, I saw that a few years ago and thought about that as I started uh, looking at this passage in Galatians three nineteen through 25 And, you know, they keep it as a pet, and if you're able to read everything, they had to release it to the wild, and when they went back, as you saw, Christian the lion recognized them, and apparently Christian the lion was pretty good to them, because when he went jumping, if I was there, I would have just tried to do my best Michael Vick moves I could, because, you know, that probably has claws. I'll just stick with my Tonkinese cat, and if any of you have a lion as a pet, let me know so I don't come visit you. <laughs> Anyways, can you imagine that though? When you like when is it okay to keep a lion as a pet? Generally we have we we, we we none of us have problems seeing lions as long as they're at the zoo in the cage, right? We want some bars or or, or heavy, thick plexiglass or something in between us and the lion. I like going to zoos and seeing lions behind bars. I like watching lions on television. I even like watching snakes on television, but not in my front yard. Anything's good on TV when there's some distance between us. But here's the application. Think about this. When we think about the Old Testament law, the Apostle Paul has been writing about the Old Testament law. When we think about the Old Testament law, we are the lion and the old testament law functions as bars of a cage to keep us from sinning we are the lion and the old testament law functions as bars of a cage to keep us from sinning now if our if our lion nature changes if our lion nature changes there's no need for the bars and that is what this passage is about Jesus came. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again. He sends the Holy Spirit to us. So we don't need the law, the Old Testament law, to make us righteous. In fact, the Old Testament law could never make us righteous. But our lion nature has changed because of Jesus and the Holy Spirit and his shed blood on the cross. Now, as I've said before, in the Old Testament, we have civil law, We have ceremonial or religious laws, and we have moral laws. And we're still supposed to try our best to keep the moral law, but it could not make us righteous. And we can never live to keep the moral law except by the Holy Spirit within us anyways. So Paul's been writing about the law, and Paul has been saying that we are not made right with God by the law. We are not made right with God by the law. We are made right with God by faith, by faith, by faith. So what is the purpose of the law? And that is what Paul jumps into in Galatians 3.19. I want to go there and talk about it. And my theme today is that the law was our tutor until Christ came. The law was our tutor until Christ came. So let's read this passage, Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 to 25. I hope you're there. If not, please make your way there and and park there. And let's read this together. Paul asked the question, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is a the law then contrary to the promises of God. <clears throat> May it never be. Notice that's an exclamatory phrase, exclamation point. For if if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Verse 24, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The law was our tutor to lead us to Christ, is what the Apostle Paul is saying, what the Apostle Paul is talking about right here. And we all might have a little image of a tutor, and our image is wrong. (laughs) And we're going to get to that in the end. A tutor was a sharp disciplinarian, to lead us to Christ. Or actually lead us until Christ. Until Christ came. So Paul asks the question first. What then was the purpose of the law? That's verses 19 through 20. What then was the purpose of the law? Let me read those two verses again. Why the law then? It's a question. It's a fair question. He's been talking again and again and again about how the law could not make us righteous. So he asked the question. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. Now, a transgression means to break a moral or divine law. It's one of the three words used for sin. It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Let's talk about those two verses first. These verses bring to conclusion... Paul's long parentheses from verses 10 to 25. Verses 10 to 25 are a long parentheses which Paul used in Galatians. Paul has been talking about the purpose of the law. And we must always remember to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. I like how the New American Commentary points out, it, he, it says, Paul seems to be writing in theological shorthand. I like that. Paul seems to be writing in theological shorthand here in Galatians. Paul will later expand on the themes, on these themes in the letter of Romans. Later in Romans, Romans was written a long time, 15 or so years, um, a little bit more than 15 years after Galatians. And at that time, he will expand on these themes. Right here is theological shorthand. So we must always look to Romans for any problems interpreting Galatians. Further, the New American Commentary points out, Paul's meaning is essentially clear. The law is not on the same par with the covenant of promise. Not only because it was chronologically limited, but also because it was handed down by angels with a man acting as a go-between. The law is not on the same par as a covenant of promise. The promise given to Abraham 430 years before the Mosaic law is on a higher level than the law. The law had a theological, a chronological issue. The promise to Abraham came earlier, as I just said, 430 years earlier. But also, the law was given to Moses. With angels mediating. Actually, no, Moses was the mediator. So, and and angels were um, acting, it was handed down by angels, and a man, being Moses, was the go-between. Now, we know that later, Jesus became our great high priest. Jesus became our great mediator. Verse 19, we see that the law was ordained by angels. Moses was the mediator. Moses was less of a mediator than Jesus. Moses was less of a mediator than Jesus. Jesus would come. The verse says that we needed the law because of our transgressions. There are various views on the need of the law and transgressions, but there are four purposes of the law. There are four purposes for the law. One. One is to provide a sacrificial system to deal temporarily with transgressions. Number two, to teach people more clearly what God requires and thereby to restrain transgressions. The law is like the bars on a cage restraining transgressions. Three, third purpose for the law, to show that transgressions violated an explicit written law. Our transgressions, our sins violate an explicit written law. And number four, to reveal people's sinfulness and need for a savior. The law reveals we are sinners in need of a savior, and that is what Romans 3:20 says. Romans 3:20 says, "Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin." All four senses are theologically important right here. But the last one is what most, mostly what Paul likely has in mind. All four senses are theologically true. They're all theologically true. The law shows we needed a pro- The law provides a sacrificial system to deal temporarily with transgressions. The law teaches people more clearly what God requires and restrains transgressions. The law shows that transgressions violated an explicit written law. And the law does reveal we are sinners and it gives us knowledge of sin. And that is what Paul most likely has in mind right here is cross-reference with Romans 3.20. One source points out this. The preventive and provocative functions correspond to the civil and spiritual uses of the law as developed by Martin Luther. Clearly, Luther thought, God has ordained civil laws for the purpose of restraining evildoers. Just as a rope or chain prevents a wild animal from attacking an innocent bystander, so too the law with its thou shalt nots. And penal code prevents sinful humanity from going on a rampage and completely destroying itself. Obviously, without the civil use of the law, human society could not be sustained. So we needed the law. We needed the law to show us that we are sinners in need of a Savior, as well as for the other reasons which I just gave. But I also think it's amazing that right here in this verse, Paul talks about the promise Given to Abraham, pointing to the seed, which is Christ. Right there, the promise given to Abraham points to the seed, which is Christ, our Savior. By the way, we get the idea of the angels giving the law, and that comes from Acts 7.53. In Acts 7.53, it says, You received the law by decrees given by angels, but you did not obey it. Now, moving to verse 20, we have a lot of discussion about this idea of a mediator. But I believe Moses was the mediator when God gave the people the law. Moses was the mediator, but he was a fallen mediator because he was a sinner just like everyone else. He was a fallen mediator, and that also points to Jesus. That also points to the, to the idea that the law was lacking. Later, Jesus came, our perfect high priest and our one once-for-all mediator. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? That's verses 21 through 22. Let's look at those verses again, 21 and 22. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Paul is totally opposed to this idea. You notice, you know, is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Paul is totally opposed to that idea. If you see it, Paul says, certainly not. Certainly not. Or as my translation said, may it never be. It's an exclamatory phrase. It has an exclamation point at the end. May it never be. The Greek expression Paul uses, me genoito, me genoito. And it conveys horror and shock at the very concept under consideration. Of its 15 occurrences, 15 in the New Testament, 13 are used by the Apostle Paul. The KJV uses the phrase, God forbid, to translate that. Here's a sampling. Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? God forbid, Romans 3.6. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, Romans 3.31. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, Romans 6, 1 through 2 Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid, Romans 9.14. Is therefore Christ a minister of sin? God forbid, Galatians 2.17. And in this case, same thing. Verse 21 continues with the point that the law could not impart life. Righteousness could not come from the law. Verse 22, notice how Paul uses the word translated as scripture. He says, everyone is shut up under sin. And he uses the idea of a cage. John MacArthur shares, the Greek verb translated imprisoned here uh, means to enclose on all sides. Paul portrays all mankind as hopelessly trapped in sin. Like a school of fish caught in a net. We are all hopelessly, we were all hopelessly trapped in sin. Like a school of fish caught in a net by the law showing that we're sinners and we need a savior the promise comes by faith in jesus so now we come to the concluding paragraph verses 23 through 25 and we continue the thought of the second paragraph summing up the function of the law in terms of a new metaphor and the metaphor paul uses is that of a pedagogus, is translated as tutor Pedagogus translated as tutor paul says we were kept in custody under the law Think about that. It's like those bars that keep the lion inside the cage. Verse 24 says that the law became a tutor. And verse 24 says that we are justified, which means we are made right with God, declared righteous by faith. Now we need to talk about this idea of a tutor. Because what we think of as, as a tutor is not what they would have thought of. This is an idea, this is one case where, you know, looking at different cultures totally changes things. This is what I read about a tutor in the Greco-Roman world. In ancient Greece and Rome, wealthy parents often placed their newborn babies under the care of a wet nurse, who in turn would pass them on to an older woman, a nanny, who would care for their basic needs until about the age of six. At that time, they came under the supervision of another household servant, the pedagogus. Again, that's translated as tutor. Tutor. The pedagogists who remained in charge of their upbringing until late adolescence. The pedagogue took over where the nanny left off in terms of offering menial care and completing the process of socialization for his charge. For example, one of the functions of the pedagogue was to offer instruction in the basics of manners, as this description from Plutarch reveals. This is what Plutarch says. And what do teach? what do tutors teach? to walk in the public streets with lowered head, to touch salt fish, with one finger, but fresh fish, bread, and meat with two, to sit in such and such a posture, in such and such a way to wear their cloaks. The pedagogues also offered round-the-clock supervision and protection to those under their care. In this regard, Labanius described the pedagogues as guardians of young teenage boys who warded off unsolicited homosexual advances, their charges regularly encountered in the public baths, thus becoming like barking dogs to wolves. They were strong disciplinarians, and the source continues with this one last paragraph. No doubt there were many pedagogues who were known for their kindness and held in affection by by their wards. But the dominant image was that of a harsh disciplinarian. A harsh disciplinarian. The Apostle Paul is comparing the law to a harsh disciplinarian. And listen how this continues. A harsh disciplinarian who frequently resorted to physical force and corporal punishment as a way of keeping his children in line. For example, a certain pedagogue named Sosacrenes was described as a fierce and mean old man because of his physically breaking up a rowdy party. He then dragged away his young man charcoals like the lowest slave and delivered the other troublemakers to the jailer with instructions that they should be handed over to the public executioner. That's pretty intense, isn't it? I didn't have any tutors like that. I don't know about you. If you did, I'd like to hear about it. The ancient Christian writer Theodore of Cyrus, Cyrus observed that students are scared of their pedagogues. And well, they might have been because pedagogues frequently accomplish their tasks by tweaking the ear, cuffing the hands, whipping, caning, pinching, and other unpleasant means of applied correction. Wow, that's the metaphor the Apostle Paul uses for the law, a harsh disciplinarian. I love the background information. We may translate the word as tutor, but it means so much more. The law was a very strong disciplinarian to lead us until Christ came. The law was a very strong disciplinarian to lead us until Christ came. Some translations say to lead us to Christ, but I think it's better translated until Christ came. Let's make some applications. The law was important. The law had a purpose. It's not that the law wasn't important. It's not that the law isn't important anymore. It's just that the law cannot make us righteous. The law cannot bring salvation to us. The law is still important because it does give us bars or guardrails for right and wrong. And that's very important. We learn the moral law through the law as well. But the law does not save us. Jesus saves us. And he saves us by his grace. It's all about Jesus. Our salvation was and is and always will be all about Jesus. We need to stop trying to earn it. Our salvation is Jesus plus nothing. Get this. Christianity is not a religion. A religion is how we earn our way to heaven. Can you earn your way to heaven? No. Christianity is about what Jesus has done to pay our way to heaven by his grace. When we fall down spiritually, we can trust the grace of Christ to pick us up. Christ paid for our salvation. More than that, Christ paid for our justification. Christ made us righteous. We need to give him praise and glory and serve him. I like to run, which is important because I also like to eat. We've talked about that before. I have a problem with cinnamon rolls and ice cream, especially Dairy Queen cakes. And so I like to run. One thing I hate about this time of year is I don't like to run on a treadmill. I get on the treadmill and it just seems like I'm not going anywhere because I'm not right I don't like running on the treadmill I mean I can look at the odometer and see maybe that I made some progress sometimes I have to cover up the odometer I get bored so then I push the treadmill to the top speed and almost trip and then I push the incline all the way up every half mile. because I'm bored I like running outside I don't like running on the treadmill it's always like I'm not going anywhere it's always like I didn't even do anything And that's what the law was like. You don't go anywhere. You don't get salvation in the end. Unless you could keep it 100% completely. And none of us could. And that's why we needed Jesus. Who went and fulfilled the law for us. Keeping it. And dying in our place. I'm also a terrible swimmer. I can swim enough to drown, and I realized that on an NJROTC trip in 1998. I was an NJROTC in high school. That stands for Navy, Ju- Navy Junior Reserve Officer Training Corps. And we went to Pensacola. We went through some submarines and some na- a Navy base and things like that. And everybody, all my friends, they were swimming out to a sandbar. So I thought, well, I'll join them. I'm a terrible swimmer. I said that, right? So I start swimming. And it was like I wasn't making any progress. And eventually I realized it really wasn't. I'm a terrible swimmer and every stroke I took, the waves are pulling me right back. And I'm trying to swim and I'm looking up and I'm not making progress. I'm trying to swim, I'm looking up, I'm not making progress, I'm trying to swim. And it's like that sandbar kept getting further and further away. It didn't help that the water was cold. I don't like cold water either, okay? Don't like cold water. Steve does not like cold water. and So I keep swimming. I'm trying to get there and eventually I couldn't go anymore. I just could not keep swimming. I was above my head because I'm not that tall. I don't know if you knew that. And, and So I reached out and I called to the lieutenant who was our instructor and eventually one of them came and pulled me back out there with them and then, Pulled me into the shore and onto the beach. i would never been so tired. I don't think I've ever been so tired and fatigued in my life and so thirsty. What well, was it get anywhere? That's the law. The law is given and it gives us knowledge of our sin. It shows us that we need a savior. We need to trust in Jesus' uh, grace for our forgiveness of sin. One more illustration here. You know, I always look for illustrations of grace. Illustrations of grace, and I'm and grace could be called unmerited favor. Grace could be called God giving us what we don't deserve. And in wrath is God, um, and, and mercy is God holding back what we do deserve, which is His wrath. Well, I was reading Charlotte's Web to to Mercedes and Abigail. I'm sure all of you read that every night as well, right? And I'm reading Charlotte's Web, and I got this great illustration for grace. At least I thought so. So great that I want to read it to you. And so we finished Charlotte's Web last night, and if 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 you don't know, Now, I don't know where you've been, because it was around when you were kids too. But Charlotte's Web is about a spider who helped save a pig from being slaughtered and becoming my favorite food, bacon. And um and this spider, you know, is written by E.B. White, and this spider saves a pig by writing words in its web. Writing words like terrific and things like that in the web. And we're towards the end of the book, we're towards the end of the book, and a pig had just Wilbur, that's the pig's name, he had just gone to the fair and he won a prize for the spider's words in the web. He won the prize They're about to go home, but Charlotte's about to die. That's really sad. Spoiler warning, I'm sorry. If you watch the movie, read the book, now you know Charlotte dies in the end. Just like a good Disney movie, okay? I don't know this Disney, but... So, I'm going to pick up right there and read a paragraph or two. Charlotte and Wilbur were alone. The families had gone to look for Fern. Fern's the little girl that saved Wilbur. I don't think a real farmer would ever do that, but... I'm not a farmer, I grew up in suburbs, so... So, the families had gone to look for Fern. Templeton was asleep. Templeton's the rat. Wilbur lay resting after the excitement and strain of the ceremony. His medal still hung from his neck. By looking out of the corner of his eye, he could see it. "'Charlotte,' said Wilbur, after a while. "'Why are you so quiet?' "'I like to sit still,' she said. "'I've always been rather quiet. "'Yes, but you seem especially so today. "'Do you feel all right?' A little tired, perhaps, but I feel peaceful. Your success in the ring this morning was to a small degree any success. Your future is assured. You will live secure and safe, Wilbur. Nothing can harm you now. These autumn days will shorten and grow cold. The leaves will shake loose from the trees and fall. Christmas will come, then the snows of winter. You will live to enjoy the beauty of the frozen world, for you mean a great deal to Zuckerman. And he will not harm you, ever. Winter will pass, the days will lengthen, the ice will melt in the pasture pond. The song sparrow will return and sing, the frogs will awake, the warm wind will blow again. All these sights and sounds and smells will be yours to enjoy, Wilbur. Wilbur, this lovely world, these precious days. Charlotte stopped. A moment later, a tear came to Wilbur's eye. Oh, Charlotte, he said. To think that when I first met you, I thought you were cruel and bloodthirsty. That's because he saw her catch a fly and suck the blood out. (laughs) When he recovered from his emotion, he spoke again. Why did you do all this for me, he asked. I don't deserve it. I've never done anything for you. And that's grace. That is exactly grace. We could not earn our salvation... So God took care of it. God wanted a relationship with us. And in reality, the real hardcore truth is we never did anything for God. We're here to glorify Him. We do by just being created and just serving our purpose. We never could do anything for God. God stepped in, the Bible says, and we were still sinners. Christ died for us. We love Him because He first loved us. Have you trusted in the grace of Christ? for salvation? Have you trusted in God's grace? The Bible would say that today is a day of salvation. We should never wait. We're never promised tomorrow. Are you living for Christ? Maybe you're not, maybe, maybe you've always thought you were trusting in Christ's grace, but maybe you're still kind of clinging, thinking that you're earning your salvation. You're good enough. No one could be good enough. If we could be good enough, the cross was meaningless. Pray with me. Let's close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, I thank you for going to the cross for our sins. I thank you for your grace. Father God, I thank you for your grace. Lord, may we trust in your unearned, unmerited favor giving us salvation. And Lord, keep us from those things that would try to make us think that we could earn our salvation and nullify, make void, make worthless the grace of Christ. Lord, I thank you that... We couldn't do anything to earn our salvation, so you stepped in. You love us. You do desire a relationship with us. We see that. But we must confess we are sinners in need of of a Savior. We must believe that you're only Savior. We must trust in you and commit to you. Help us trusting and committing to you. Help us to walk by the Holy Spirit. And if there's anyone here who has not surrendered to you, may today be the day they trust in you as Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.